1: Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here this week with Dr. David S. Anderson from Radford University. Uh, Dr. Anderson is an anthropologist uh, who received his PhD from Tulane University. Um, Currently is a professor at Radford University. He um, has just a super interesting take on archaeology and the way the public interacts with it and uh, just a depth of knowledge that we really wanted to bring to you listeners. His research interests include public archaeology, conceptions of heritage, uh, the Maya and Mesoamerican cultures, especially their formative period, and also uh, academic engagement with pseudoscience and pseudoarchaeology, a topic that obviously we have a lot of parallels with on our show as we try to engage with uh, pseudoscience and the kind of woo fields out there. So, uh, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, no problem. I'm so happy it finally uh, we finally were managed to get this to happen. Yes. It's, um, I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and just you know, really excited and everything else to finally have you on the show here. So, why don't you give listeners a little bit of background first, I guess, on um, what your research is and, and what you do?
0: Sure. So, yeah, I have a long background in archaeology. I've been working in the field since the late 90s. Uh, my traditional you know, excavation style work has been in Mexico studying the Maya, as you noted. Um, I, I love, you know, this is the thing. I love squishy things, which I think is what brings us here today, too. I love things that are hard to define. And so uh, truly my, uh, my sort of bread and butter in terms of Maya archaeology is looking at sociopolitical organization during that formative period. Uh, which is basically to say they're not a state yet. It's before you get all the super complex entrenched bureaucratic government that comes along with the classic period and all the hieroglyphic writing and pyramids that people are familiar with. And I, I chose instead to study a time period where it's like, yeah, they're kind of like getting bigger and more complex, but it's hard to put a label on it and decide exactly what's going on. And so, yeah, I, this, I, I like studying sort of uh, squishy, problematic things as a result of um, The other side of my research agenda, yeah, is to look at these pseudo-archaeological claims, things that look at the ancient world and try to make claims about the ancient world, but in essence use fundamentally different rules about how they're going to interpret the evidence from that ancient world. Um, I have a long background in this stuff too, actually. Uh, and it's When I was 18 and heading off to college, I picked up a book called Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock, which is all about sort of a lost civilization back 10, 12,000 years ago that he had found alleged evidence for all around the world, but professional archaeologists were too narrow-minded to actually see or recognize or understand and I read that book at 18. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. I need to overthrow this narrow-minded establishment. I need to, you know, show the truth or shine the light out there to the world. And so I immediately started trying to learn more about archaeology and immediately started taking archaeology classes when I started college that fall. And oh, how that book just started to crumble. All the evidence just started to fall through as quick as I started to pick up another book about the ancient world.
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of... I, I certainly the case for Marie and I, um, and also the case for a lot of our listeners, we hear from them saying similar things, like, you know, what what got them interested in science or what got them interested in kind of classics or archaeology or or what have you, were these books by people that are now on, you know, ancient aliens. Uh-huh. And they read these books and they're like, Oh my god, it's so fascinating to think that these are um you know, maybe there's still mysteries out there like this. And then when you start to look at the evidence, it just – it breaks away. It's – you know, I mean I'll never forget. There was a book that I read called – I think it was called Secrets of the Pyramids or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was all about you know these mysteries around the pyramids and um, how they exist and everything else. And one of the claims was that it was so exciting or so interesting that they had um, – clearly this had to be built by engineers or by ancient astronauts or whatever – because the ratios of the sides, of the lengths of the sides, um, all related to this magic number pi. Mm-hmm. And I remember being blown away by that as a kid. I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. And then finding out that every single triangle, <laughs> you know, it's not that hard to make a triangle that relates to pi. And It's
0: kind of inherent to the properties, yes.
1: Right. It's, you know, it, right, it's, um, you know like like saying that there must be genetic engineering because all cats are mammals, right? It <laughs> doesn't really work that way. Um. So in terms of, I guess, your working in pseudo-archaeology or the way that the public interacts with it, um, we recently started or we recently did a series on uh, Heinrich Schliemann, this sort of interesting figure in archaeology who, you know, wasn't really classically trained and was was existing at this squishy time period, I think you'd say, for the field where things weren't really – cohesive yet there wasn't a lot of rules in place um how does professional archaeology view him today
0: oh um you know i listened to a little bit of what you all had to say about him and i think you're generally spot on uh he is (laughs) at the very least a controversial figure uh but he landed himself you know and it's uh, to a certain extent a statement of what money will buy there is you know a I'd have to count them up, but I would, I would wager a majority of the archaeological textbooks I have on my shelf list him as one of the principal founding figures of the discipline. Hmm. And whereas I, you, you were noting in your podcast that he actually, you know, was taking credit for a lot of other people's work, right? Uh, yeah. So there's, there's some issues here. Um, yeah. He's on the surface. He's treated with a fair amount of prestige. You know, like most people in the field know that if you dig down beneath that surface, there are a lot of problems, but, He's he's managed to lodge himself in our memories as sort of one of those original archaeologists.
1: So it's so interesting, those cases. I think it's something that a lot of people who are skeptical of skepticism, I guess, or skeptical of the sciences with regards to these topics, they oftentimes like to throw in our faces these stories about, oh, you know, well, science has been wrong before, science has had issues like this in the past. And it's always something I think that people are surprised about, even when I tell them about my kind of scientific research. You know, one of the foundational papers in the field that I worked in, um, everyone in the field knows can't be reproduced. It's it misses a key part of the synthesis process for this chemical and everyone knows it. And it's kind of like a hazing ritual. You know, you you have your grad students try to replicate this experiment and no one can. And then, you know, eventually your professor or P.I. is like, well, OK you have to do this step too. It wasn't in the original paper. Um, And, you know, it's like, oh my God, that's, it drives you crazy. But Schliemann kind of seems like one of those figures where for all intents, I mean, he did important things, I suppose, right? He did important things uh, and really popularized the field, but the effects of that popularization maybe haven't been as positive necessarily. Um, Right. I mean, we were talking about or thinking about at the end of that series about you know he discovered a lost city, and now we still have people today talking about lost cities and pointing to Troy as an example of a lost city found.
0: Well, and, and he inspired, I, I think, to, uh, not to blame him per se, but in a, a very real way, I think that he inspired and led to the success of another uh, gentleman, Ignatius Donnelly, who came shortly after him. Um, pretty much the reason anyone has you know heard of Atlantis today is because of Ignatius Donnelly. In 1882 he wrote a book uh, Atlantis and the Antediluvian World uh, which alleged that he could find proof that Atlantis was a real place. And I think one of the reasons that his book sold as well as it did and was received as well as it was in the time was because just a few years earlier Schliemann had been there claiming to find Troy. And so when you get someone else coming along and saying, well, if we found Troy, why on earth couldn't we find Atlantis? Why couldn't we find another sort of quote-unquote mythical Greek city?
1: Right, and then you kind of dig into it, though, and it kind of turns out that Troy was never really lost, per se. You know what I mean? It's
0: Well, yeah, and that's where – on the surface, yeah, it's like there's these things like, oh, yeah, two Greek cities from these stories. Why not? But, yeah, like Troy – it's got its own you know, problematic background there, right? Like you said, it's never really lost. It's been known for a long time. Lots of other people have been looking at it. But also for me, this is you know, one of the main things that I would point out or like to talk about is that while these are both places written down in Greek sources, those sources are fundamentally different. Uh, Homer's poems... If they were even written by Homer, right? They, these are fundamentally the Iliad and the Odyssey are stories that were passed down through oral po- uh, poetic traditions, and mm-hmm. um, they were in essence, you know, nighttime storytelling traditions. That's, and we don't know quite who wrote the Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. They are attributed to Homer, uh, but they were written down by someone else in essence years, if not hundreds of years later. Um, that's a very specific type of storytelling tradition, and it's not really outlandish to imagine that a nighttime storytelling tradition might include stories of great deeds by historical figures, and that those deeds mm-hmm. might get elaborated or expanded upon over the years as everyone tells the story you know, night in and night out. Atlantis is fundamentally different. There's one and only one place, as I'm sure you know, for where the story comes from, and it comes from uh, the dialogues of the philosopher Plato. And um, this this is something that I I, I get pushed back online about this sometimes where people say like, well, Plato talked about how he learned this story from from Egypt. Like, you got to step back here for a second and talk about Plato was a philosopher who in virtually every single dialogue constructed some kind of thought experiment or constructed some sort of hypothetical example to try and play out the ontological questions that he was interested in. And, in that context, Atlantis is a very simple moral parable. Uh, there was this big, large, powerful Greek city-state, uh, more powerful than any other Greek city-state, and it lost in a battle to Athens, to Plato's hometown. Uh, it was defeated by this teeny, tiny little village, basically. Why? Because they had, uh, they had spurned the gods. They had become too prideful, too hubristic, uh, and so the gods smacked them down and allowed uh, Athens to defeat them. This was like a very simple moral parable of don't be prideful. And yet somehow this example has become treated and received as realistic, basically, right? As it must be the same. Well, if if Troy from oral history uh, must be the same as this philosopher's hypothetical example.
1: Right. And, you know, it's again, it's one of those funny situations where, you know, even from the philosophical standpoint, right? Plato believed all kinds of crazy things we don't believe today about the world. Yes. You know, I mean, like these people aren't, um, again, it's that kind of just because someone is really good at one thing doesn't mean that they're good at everything. You know, Plato said all kinds of crazy things about, you know, medicine and (laughs) governments and whatever, right?
0: I also love how he sets up in Timaeus and Critias, the two dialogues that mention Atlantis. He goes out of his way to point out that this story happened 9,000 years ago. Beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which you know for which is ostensibly should be the Straits of Gibraltar, which is the edge of the map as far as the Greeks are aware. So what is he saying? Like this took place a long time ago, far far away. Like he tells you right up front that this is a hypothetical example.
1: Right, right, yeah. It's you know, but it is interesting though. It, we actually got into a discussion about this on Facebook today because there's a new. So there's a new um. This doesn't really have to do with with archaeology necessarily, but it does it with pseudoscience just generally. Um, one of my pet peeves, at least as a as a scientist or someone who's who's trained in the sciences, let's say, is um, the misunderstanding of kind of the use of allegory or metaphor mm-hmm. in scientific writing. You know, so you have people who will go on TV and say, "Well, you know, the multiple worlds hypothesis of quantum mechanics suggests that there's parallel universes out there," and it's like, "No, it's just a." Cool way to describe a mathematical trick we use right it's it doesn't actually mean that, and the guy who came up with it didn't think it actually meant that um, the same thing happens it seems all the time in philosophy or, or archaeology or just readings generally of of texts um, and a good example of that, like you said, yeah is atlantis um, it's just so it's so interesting you know it i don't know it makes me wonder i mean what do you think what do you think is someone who studies kind of this pseudo archaeology or just kind of you know odd beliefs about the past in general do you think that there's anything that we could do i mean obviously education better education seems to be the answer to solve this kind of problem but you know what what do you think in terms of of how to get to people who believe these things or or ways that we can inoculate people against these beliefs what do you think might be
0: effective it's a hard question to answer. And I think, you know, one, uh, talk about it publicly, which is exactly why I try to do any podcast like this that I can. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, the, there's a, a broad pattern throughout all the sciences. As the sciences became professionalized, uh, they became more insular. And this absolutely happened in archaeology. This is you know, sort of the way it goes in any field where you are trying to acquire new knowledge and push the boundaries of what we understand. With every 5, 10, 20 years there are more findings and more things that have been uh, understood that a new student has to learn to be able to uh, adjust to the field and understand the field and contribute to a field. And so every passing couple of decades, it becomes harder and harder for someone to break into these fields. And mm. as a result, I think you know, these. You know, we have become more insular over time. If you look at the early days of archeology span back in the 20s and the 30s, I mean, it's something like half the people uh, who made significant contributions to the field came in as outsiders, came in as amateurs or wealthy, you know, often wealthy individuals who could just afford to play with this stuff. But by the time you get to the 70s and the 80s, you've got to have a university, not just an undergraduate degree in this, but a graduate degree in this. And you've got to have a university job to be able to support any research on it. And then all the findings are being published in peer-reviewed journals that are, you know, for most practical purposes, hard to access if you're not in the university system. So the general public doesn't get to see what we're doing anymore. And I think that what archaeology desperately needs to do is talk more to the public. I think we yeah. have, you know, for the last several decades, we have you know, talked mostly to ourselves. And you see an occasional documentary, you see an occasional popular book out there. But the vast majority of the popular discourse on the ancient world has been taken over by conspiracy theory television shows and if you go into a Barnes and Noble, you're going to find far more pseudo archaeological books than you will actual archaeological books. And that's been this that's been the case for 20 years now, basically. Like we, we need to, our particular discipline needs to step back into the public limelight and talk to people about what we're doing.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think it's, it's, even as someone who considers myself to be relatively, um, well, I guess I would have considered myself to be and then, you know, interviews with people like you and Jeff Card and reading these books has proven to me that, nope, you're an idiot. You didn't know any of this stuff, um, you know, very quickly as someone who previously would have considered myself to be well-read and skeptical and, you know, everything else. Uh, the things that I thought about archaeology were so and just not even archaeology, but just like basic history, you know. When, 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 when was the Mayan civilization happening in regards to like Rome or Egypt <laughs> well,
0: was is, so wrong, was I mean, so wrong. This is a great point too, because you know, so often people tell me like, oh, anyone who would believe in ancient aliens, they're just dumb or something like this. Right. And that's not what any of these things feed off of. They feed off of intelligence and curiosity about the world. They don't feed off of ignorance or stupidity. And so like I, even me, I, I will forever remember you know, once I was in grad school studying archaeology, I had you know, this long background in pseudo-archaeological claims personally and sort of from a professional perspective already too, and I picked up a book, uh, Gavin Menzies' book 1421, uh, and it's this book all about how an expedition of ships leaving China in 1421 had successfully mapped parts of the Americas, parts of Australia, all decades before any European explorers had done. And, you know, this book... I. I picked it up in my bookstore. I'm like, this is amazing. This looks really cool. And I I don't know much about China. I know a little bit about sailing, I know a little bit about mapping, I know something about history. I got halfway through this book, I was like, oh my God, this is really cool. This really happened. And then he started to talk about the China about Chinese vessels interacting with the Maya. And this was like my wheelhouse, right? And all of a sudden it was like, holy crap, he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> like he was totally misrepresenting the basic information about the Maya. And it is this this thing, it's like these books, these shows, these ideas feed off of interest and intelligence, but none of us are experts in all, all things, right? You can't be an expert in everything. And so I think this is, you know, perhaps, you know, what can we do? We can try to rebuild some confidence in experts because we need to offload some of that effort. We need to be able to turn to somebody and say, hey, Chris, you've got to tell me about chemical engineering because I don't have the time to figure that stuff out, Right. So hopefully you know, we can all learn to guard ourselves and, and ask those questions of the people who can answer them. Yeah,
1: for sure. It, the One of the biggest challenges that we've seen, at least since doing the show, is exactly what you said. It's not people who are – it's really easy to discount the people who believe in these things as just being silly or dumb or whatever – but then you talk to them and it's just that they don't they just don't know. You know what I mean? They don't know any better because the content available to them is so tinged with conspiracy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just it's just impossible to get around at this point. Um, so with that, actually, we're going to jump into our first break here. And when we come back, we'll start talking about how the lizard people are real. In terms of, I guess, archaeology is a is something that is professional, is something that is requiring of experts. That's one area, actually, I think where it's really easy to think that. Or so. Let me let me rephrase this. I guess it's really easy to feel like you are underqualified to. Um, to like do rocket science. I mean, that's, and that's not even necessarily true anymore because we just had that guy who strapped himself to a rocket, and then died. I right? so rockets, <laughs> yeah. So rocket science isn't even rocket science anymore, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, something like that, where it's, I think there's like a myth of professionalization there mm-hmm. or not even a myth necessarily, but there's this esteem given to like, Oh, you're a, you're a doctor or you're a whatever. Um, but the kind of, I guess what, what, um physicists with overinflated egos would call the soft sciences uh-huh. you know they i think people have this conception that oh well those are those are more akin to something like say like like writing or philosophy or these other disciplines that also require their own um professional standards and and methods and everything else and best practices but that the public i think generally views as being like oh well that's something i could do Mm -hmm. what are some of those i guess like in terms of the difference between like say a professional archaeology versus amateur archaeology or the stuff that happens on ancient aliens or whatever um besides like the excessive amounts of hair gel what is the difference there
0: well i think we can talk about this um there's a tendency on these shows like to take an object in isolation so for example the sarcophagus lid of pakal which is often referred to as a rocket ship and they and they invite the audience to interpret it for themselves, right? And this is sort of engages the audience and gets them interested and lets them feel like, hey, I as an amateur can look at this and walk away with a conclusion about it, right? Uh, But what it it doesn't do is say like, well, yes, there's this one piece of my art, but there are 500 other examples over here we're not going to ask you to look at, right? Uh, So I think that's sort of the technique there where it's, let someone feel like the Mm. the engaged amateur who can draw their own conclusions by looking at the data themselves, but it's giving them a very small snippet of the data rather than the totality of it.
1: So it's got it. Okay. So it's very similar. I'd say to actually, and and what's funny is it is similar to the other fields where it's more that the shallowness of the knowledge, Mm -hmm. it's easier to feel like you're making a good call with a shallow bit of information Versus like a breadth of information, and part of that is because it seems easy to or or people are given that that opportunity I guess you know no one ever asks someone um you know no one ever does a show on like the National Geographic or whatever where they talk about two pharmaceuticals and then they say, well you decide as an audience which one do you think we should give to whatever right well, like're do the happen. advertising
0: for these um, drugs, right like ask your doctor about this yes they <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah, I would feel so. I feel silly uh, asking sure. my doctor about, you know, a, a sprain. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I'm like, I know this is a dumb question, but am I going to lose the leg? <laughs> you know, Um, in terms of, let's say, a figure like Schliemann, where some of the I guess some of the negatives that he some of the negative things that he did, that his actions had those consequences like. Um, you know, destroying evidence in Troy and maybe muddling some of that, that stuff there. I think, at least from what I was able to see, people would argue that the benefit that he brought to the field of popularizing it, of bringing more money in, of making people excited about it and willing to fund those expeditions, that the, the pros kind of weigh out the cons. That's a similar argument that I've seen some people make about, say, shows like Ancient Aliens, where... You know, um, well, it's getting people interested in archaeology, or it's making people look at Mayan sites and traditions and things and want to protect them. Um, what do you do? You think that the do you think the ends justify the means? I guess in that sense, or do you think there's more there's more negatives being brought out?
0: I do think there are more negatives being brought out, and, and it, it's a hard question, or it's a it's a good question to ask, I should say, because. I mean, as I said already, you know, why am I here? Why am I an archaeologist? Well, I was drawn in by some of these claims, these pseudo-archaeological claims myself. So I can't, you know, I can't stand here and say, well, they can never possibly have any good outcomes because I kind of think I'm an okay outcome for some of these things. But, you know, I really turn to one of the things people bring up to me all the time and have for years is like, well, you know, not many people believe this stuff. You know, I learned about the pyramids by watching ancient aliens. Like, oh, we just watch it and have a laugh. There's a survey that's been done by Chapman University over the last few years. And in 2015, they asked, you know, how many people believe in ancient aliens, basically. And 20% said, yes, I believe ancient alien contact is real. By 2018, they asked the same question. And 41% of Americans, at least the sample, uh, of Americans said that they believed ancient alien contact was real. There is a growing and an cr- extremely high percentage of people who, you know, they maybe they're thinking they're just watching the show for fun, uh, but they're walking away not with knowledge about archaeology. They're walking away with a knowledge of a conspiracy theory instead.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, I completely, I completely agree. Um, You know, it's funny, we talk about this, I think, in an early episode, but I'll never forget when I was in, so my, between my sister and I, there's like a 10 year age gap and I'll never forget, um, one day we were, I was talking about like doing this podcast and being excited about it and everything else. And, you know, I've always been into these, into these kind of weird stories and so is she now. And she told me that, you know, they've proven that mermaids are real. And I was just like, no, they haven't. Like, what are you talking about? She goes, no, I saw it on a documentary on TV. They had, like, scientists (sighs) and stuff talking about it. And it was that stupid mermaid show, you know, that at the end for, like, 10 seconds are like, this is a fictionalized account. (laughs) You know, it's like what you've done. Yeah, you've done damage there. You've really done damage. This person who, you know, um, even if it only took you know, a couple minutes to kind of dissuade her. But the funny thing was that during that time period, like I was 20 or, you know, in my twenties, whatever, she was kind of like, a, like an early teenager. So everything oh. I said is like an older figure was like an eye roll and, you know, Oh yeah. Okay. And so when I told her, I was like, no, mermaids aren't real, whatever. She was like, mm, I don't know. It's like, I wanted to pull the car over and be like, listen to me. You know, it was so, so frustrating. and so scary that this uh, kind of, you know, seeing the misinfo spread, um, there's definitely, I mean, it's, it's even just in terms of the rationality, I guess, or building arguments, it, it lets you make appeals to things like, well, it seems like this should be the case, right? It appeals to the kind of naturalist fallacy um, that are just, you know, the things that we should be teaching students and young people to get away from
0: hmm. Now, and I think you know, here's where you perhaps you need to invite a psychologist on the show rather than me. But I see it all the time with my students because I, I teach a class on paranormal belief uh, at Radford and there's a tremendous tendency. Uh, and we talk about it in the class. We talk about it all the time. But it's like when you see something, when you read something, we all seem to have this tendency to believe what we read and a reluctance to critically engage with it. It takes more effort. It takes more time to stop and say, wait, who wrote this? Who published this? You know, are their facts reasonable or not? That takes more time and effort. And so I think there's this you know, primary observation sort of uh, bias where once we hear something or if it's the first thing we read about a topic that we have a tendency to want to fall back to that first thing that we heard or read.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, yeah. It's, it's something that we bring up um, a lot. You know, the ability to change someone's mind on something is harder than just getting them to believe you in the first place. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, I guess, this ancient alien show, right? One of the, one of the, uh, complaints that we've made and, you know, a lot of people have made, of course, is this idea that it really misrepresents the abilities or the, um, I mean, it just, it kind of belittles, I think, cultures that aren't European. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it makes it seem like they could, you know, there's no way these people, could have built a pyramid, um, you know, I guess, first off, how do you respond to that, I guess? Or what do you think about that kind of take on the show?
0: It it is the classic, like, you know, especially in the early seasons, they repeat the claims again and again. Look how big that block is. It's so heavy, nobody could move it. Or look at this carving. It's so good, no one could do it. Um, My favorite refutation, actually, in particular, of no one could carve this is just to go back to episode one of Ancient Aliens. Uh, they were talking about some stonework from the Andes i believe from the site of Pumapunku and they um, it's you know it's very impressive right angles interior corners you know it's very well carved stone it's very aesthetically appealing and in the show they interviewed a sculptor a modern day sculptor and for like 10 minutes the sculptor's like oh my god it'd be so hard to do this i mean i don't know how they could have done this and at the very end of the interview and they left this in the show which is the best part at the very end of the interview he says Something to the effect of like, well, you could do it, but it would take a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you really can. You know, it's and this is we accept that it took generations to build medieval churches, but somehow we expect that these, you know, Inca Masonry or other sites were built in five months. Like it took generations to build these things as well. It took a lot of time. The, the great weight, you know, how big and heavy these stones are is a classic one, too, right? Because, one, I would always I always like to point out, um, it's not, you know, they'll tell you, like, this, this stone block weighs 55,302 tons. Like, they didn't put it on a scale. They don't know how much it weighs. They're making an estimate. <clears throat> but then they never try to sort of engage with, well, is it actually that hard? They're like, modern cranes can't move that. Like, yeah, well, no one, they weren't using modern cranes. So maybe we should talk about other methods of moving rock. There are some really good you know, reconstruction examples uh, for people working at Stonehenge, for people working in, in the Andes, and even working in Egypt, where people have done replica, replication studies where they make and move these kinds of rocks. My, my favorite, my absolute favorite, really, is to look at Stonehenge. Uh, Stonehenge, of course, is this beautiful monument built with large, multi-ton stone blocks. Uh, and today, uh, every year, uh, the site of Stonehenge, the people who manage it, hold a festival around the equinox to celebrate the astronomical alignments of the site and to sort of raise modern awareness of the site. And one of the things they do sometimes during that spring equinox festival is they get out an example block that weighs about, I think it's two or three tons, and they get a group of school children, third graders basically, to move that block around. And sure enough, you get like 30 third graders together and you strap them onto a rock, they can move a multi-ton block. Like, and that's untrained child labor, right? <laughs> it's not actually like, yes, it takes effort. Yes, it takes time, but it is totally a doable thing. Uh, but is the classic example of the show, like, look at that block. It's too big. No one could move it. Aliens. Well, maybe if we try, we can actually learn something and see something from this.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's the it's the moving the fridge argument, right? Do you think you could lift up your fridge to move it across the room? Of course not. No. Would you do it that way? Of course not. That is really dumb, right? I'd walk it. You'd shimmy it over, right? It would take you maybe 30 minutes as opposed to lifting it and moving it would take you maybe 10 seconds. But like you said, it's time, it's the application of force, and it's just using your brain, you know, using physics. Um,
0: There's a great yeah. example of that very same thing if, if your if listeners haven't seen it before. Uh, years ago, National Geographic sponsored a replication study on Easter Island where they carved an example of a Moai, one of these Easter Island heads. And lo and behold, indigenous sources from the island had talked about the statues walking mm-hmm. and that had been dismissed, right? Like, oh, it's some native superstition. Like, no, how did they move the statue? They walked it just like a refrigerator. And that's how they do it in this video. They prop it up, they attach some ropes to it, and they walk it back and forth and walk it across the island.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's just again, it's amazing the things that you can do uh, with a lot of time, a lot of effort. That's and, you know. The drive to do it, right? It's, um, man, I don't know. So in terms of, I guess, uh, so we, we got here maybe the last last like five-ish, five, ten minutes here. So I want to get into some kind of fun stuff, I guess. So in terms of if you had to pick a favorite ancient aliens theory, like one that you just think is like the funnest or maybe the most, the I don't know, just the most interesting, whatever for you, what do you think it would be?
0: Um, Can can I shift the question slightly? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I I, I have a favorite uh, pseudo-archaeology case that I'm hoping to sort of work in to to be the introduction of of a book that I'm trying to work on about all these things. Um, In the 1940s, there were uh, some figurines that started, some ceramic figurines that started coming out of West Mexico. They started getting attention. Uh, and from a town called Acambaro in West Mexico, the Acambaro figurines—you can look these things up. I, I've got pictures of them; they're all over the internet if you look for them. Um, the Acambaro figurines uh, were—you know—when they first started coming on the ground, I'm like, wow, these are kind of weird. They, you know, some of them look like normal figurines we've seen before. Some of them don't. Then they got weirder and weirder and weirder, and some of them started looking more and more animal-like, and started looking more reptile-like, and then all of a sudden we started to get like full-on dinosaur figurines. Uh, and there's one even that seems to show like a human, there's definitely one of a human like hugging a dinosaur and one of a human riding a dinosaur. And these things are fantastic. The, um, they were very popular, uh, for a while there amongst, uh, certain individuals who wanted to argue that there was a relic population of dinosaurs that had survived in Mexico for a long time. Uh, there were some, there, there's a convoluted argument about Atlantis here and maybe they're associated with Atlantis. Um, and, of course, today they still mean, uh they're very popular among young Earth creationists who argue that this is you know, proof positive that humans and dinosaurs lived side by side. Uh, it's a great example of pseudoscience, too, because if you go back to uh, this man, Charles Hapgood, who was the one who was in essence tasked by uh, Voldemort Yulzerud, the guy who was paying for all these figurines and buying them from the locals, uh, Hapgood radiocarbon dated the figurines. The first time I read that, I was like, "Wait, he radio? How did he do that? You need carbon <laughs> to radiocarbon date something. An inorganic clay doesn't have carbon in it that can be I any. Mean, you can't do that, right? And so somehow or another, he got this like nine thousand year old date off of figurines, and it's a great example of pseudoscience, right, or pseudoarchaeology. Because if you look at it, and you don't know much about archaeology. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, archaeologists radiocarbon date stuff, and he radiocarbon dated those things, so it must be right. But can't do that that technique doesn't work with those kind of materials and uh, a few years later the university of pennsylvania uh museum actually got involved in this and they were able to do some thermal luminescence dating which uh, is a technique that does allow you to date basically it allows you to date the last time a piece of pottery was heated to a, a very high temperature
1: oh shoot sure. yeah we talked about that with jeb yep okay
0: perfect yeah and uh they you know turns out these uh, stories, these figurines are of, you know, modern origin. <laughs> and uh, what, uh, you know, an archaeologist, Charles de Peso, went down to Mexico and started sort of asking around about these and learn more about them. And it turns out that uh, the local family of bakers, uh, so you Jules you know, Julesrud was this me- German man living in this town, uh, paying for all these figurines. He was building this collection uh, and giving people money for every uh, figurine that they brought to him. So lo and behold, the Baker family decided uh, the the weird German guy in town wants figurines. We can give him figurines. <laughs> and they started making them and selling them to. I think it's like a peso apiece or something like that. And uh, yeah, it turns out they're very low fired, very poorly fired, sort of very crudely constructed. They are, yeah. And so they are hands down one of my favorite. Like this. Pseudoarchaeology goes way past just ancient aliens and Atlantis. We have all kinds of like claims about pre-Columbian contact uh, and whatnot to look at. There are all kinds of uh, weird stories out there.
1: Yeah. Oh man. So I just I googled these things, and <laughs> I gotta say I'm I'm feeling like I could be a professional uh, pseudoarchaeologist, man. I don't know. I could make dinosaurs that look like this,
0: like. <laughs> I, I had- it's one of the most bizarre moments of my life. Like, I've seen some of these up close. I've been to the University of Pennsylvania Museum, and I've, I've seen the ones that they have in their collection and whatnot, and I've seen the pictures online. The pictures online are problematic because they're not all sourced very well and whatnot. But uh, years ago, I was at a, a bed-and-breakfast in Virginia, of all places. And like right when I'm leaving, you know, checking out and going home, the owner of the bed-and-breakfast uh, somehow or another it came up that I was an archaeologist and I worked in Mexico. And she she goes like, oh wait, my husband bought me this thing that's supposed to be a ceramic figurine from Mexico, and I'm just wondering if you can tell me anything about it. And she came out with the ugliest figurine i have ever seen in my life, and it and it was kind of reptilian, and, and I'm just sitting here looking at it, and I'm like this, the moment I looked at it, especially the eye shape, the shape of the eyes to me was a dead giveaway, and it was very poorly fired, and very poorly constructed. I was looking at it like this isn't a cumbro, this this. This is an combro figurine, but yeah. you know, B&B in Virginia, like how on earth is this happening to me? And, and I, I started asking her questions about how she got it. And sure enough, um, her husband had bought it at an estate sale in Philadelphia. And there was a very wealthy contributor in Philadelphia who arranged the connection between Yules and the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to set up this display that happened at the museum there. And all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my gosh, she has!" And then, like you know, because I had not been telling her this story, because like she's not going to believe me. She's going to think this is weird or whatever. And all of a sudden, I had to explain to her. Like I was all of a sudden super excited. I'm like you have an Ecombro figurine, and she was just like, "What am I? Like, it's a fake dinosaur!" And she was like, "What is this dude? Get out of my b Like, go right?
1: She, right? She was probably hoping this was going to be like Antiques Roadshow, right? Like, oh, this is a priceless artifact. As opposed to, you know, oh, this is a well-known fake. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. You know what's funny with this, actually? This brings – so this that really reminds me of one of my favorite – and we talk about this all the time with um with stories about like UFO abductions or sightings or whatever. Kind of the anachronistic or the anachronisms that are present even in the forgeries, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at these, they look like the dinosaurs have scales and like spikes put on their backs and everything else. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's not what we think dinosaurs looked like anymore. Exactly. Right? So, so if it was real and these were really, you know, um kind uh-huh. of taken at the time that dinosaurs existed, you'd expect feathers or, you know, um,
0: yeah, that's so interesting. Because it's the classic thing, like, too, if you go back to some of the old ancient alien claims, like the Dendera light bulb is a good one where I yeah. can claim this temple of Dendera in Egypt had this ancient Egyptian light bulb. And it. it's like, well... Of course, it looks like a 1960s light bulb. Light bulbs haven't looked that way for quite a while now. <laughs> right? Why would they make the... tech look like that way?
1: <laughs> right? Why would they make the worst version of a light bulb? Yes. Right? If they were <laughs> so advanced, or you know, my favorite, my favorite one that we bring up all the time on the show is this guy. Um, you, you, I'm sure know the story of the Mothman sightings and everything else. Yes. So the part of that story that doesn't get told is that the guy who had the initial sighting of Mothman. Um, or one of the main sightings, uh, Woody Derenberger, he actually didn't, he actually made the claim about this guy Indrid Cold, this alien that came down to him and spoke to him and was this weird smiling figure and whatever. Um, A couple years later, he claimed that uh, Indrid Cold had taken him to his home planet of Lanulos, which was a, like a hippie commune sort of planet where naked aliens um, had parties and, you know, whatever, right? Um, you know they eat pills for food and all this weird stuff. Um, but his description of the ship when it lands, he talks about the ship landing, and then the door to the walkway that lets you in opening, and it making a creaking metal sound like an old car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and the the his the rest of his description of the ship is like you know these old green LCD tube TVs, you know, and. Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's steampunk, uh, technology, you know, so unless, unless the, you know, unless the aliens are very camp, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Oh man. Interesting. So this is, this is fascinating. So actually, and you said, so you're currently working on a book, um, that, that hopefully will be coming out in, in, you know. In the, in the future, I don't know when.
0: Yes, in the future, um, it's, it's, it's in production, so it's a long way to go. But, yes, I've been working on a book that is provisionally titled Weirding Archaeology. Uh, yeah, they, my take on all of this, like if you, you know, see me speak or talk or do other things and whatnot, is that usually these claims are pretty easy to debunk. And there's pretty obvious logical fallacies in most pseudo-archaeological claims and yet they are still with us, right? And they are even growing in belief. We talk about that 41% of Americans allegedly believing in, in ancient aliens, right? Like There's a problem here, right? If, there, if, if we can easily debunk something and show it's not true, and yet more and more people are believing in it, then we have something other than just a logical fallacy issue here. And so ultimately, what I'm hoping to do is to look at the cultural context that allows these bu- views to thrive and survive. And so with Weirding Archaeology, I want to look at sort of the long roots in uh, American history of why we've looked at the past in the ancient world in particular as a mysterious and weird place.
1: Interesting. Well, I'm really excited for the book to come out. Um, I can't wait to read it, really. I think it's going to be fascinating. Listeners, um, if you don't already, please follow uh, David S. Anderson here on Twitter at DSA Archaeology. Um, you'll, if you follow the show on Twitter, it's easy to find. Cause I'm, I feel like I'm constantly retweeting everything you tweet <laughs> practically. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for coming on. You know, really it was, it was great. Anything, um, anything else you want listeners to know or kind of take home with them after listening to this?
0: You know, I, I think the most important thing in all of this is that, you know, I'm not here to say, you know, only, only archaeologists know what they're talking about. Nobody else knows what they're talking about. Only the scientists know what they're talking about. Don't read, read anybody else. Like, I ask, I force my students actually all the time. We're not just going to read the archaeologists. We're going to read the pseudo-archaeologists. We're not just going to look at one, you know, we're not just going to laugh about ancient aliens. We're going to actually look at what they say and judge it by those merits. The last thing any of us should do is just simply write this stuff off. We need to engage with it and we need to understand what kind of claims are being made.
1: Absolutely. 100% support that. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we try to do it every week here on the show. But uh, hopefully we will be able to keep having you uh, archaeology experts on here to help us. Because like I said, man, I know it turns out I know nothing about any of these ancient civilizations. And I am uh, I'm so excited to be to just be learning more, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show um, again. Listeners, this has been the Mad Scientist podcast here with Dr. David Anderson um, of Radford University. Please go check him out on Twitter. When the book comes out, we'll let you all know. Um, honestly, we'll, we'll probably have to do an episode on the on the book when it comes out and have you back on here because, uh, this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again in one week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners for listening to the mad scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as The Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further to make it better and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woohoo! And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production.